How do you grow your school in this fast-changing landscape? This is what we talk about on School Growth Mastery. School marketing, fundraising, leadership, and much more. Alex, Al, and Andrew from Enroll Hand bring on a diverse list of guests and give you practical takeaways. If you feel like sharing or rating us, you'll help us grow as well. Today I'm joined by Nina Rees, the President and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, the leading nonprofit advancing the charter school movement. While Nina leads little introduction, let me just highlight that she has over 20 years of experience, a lot of it in Washington, D.C., including at the Kinder Care Education, where she oversaw strategic investments, and the Department of Education, where she oversaw 1,300 projects on school choice, charter schools, and alternative routes to school leadership. Nina, I haven't met many people who've worked that long in the White House and in Washington. How was that? Oh, gosh, it was great. Uh, this was a while back. Um, <laughs> I was um, one of the advisors uh, on the Bush campaign. So I um, had the great privilege of working on the transition team and then later going into the White House. Um, and I would have probably stayed at the White House longer had it not been for 9-11. Um, after 9-11, um, most of the focus of the White House shifted from education to uh, foreign policy and defense. And uh, so I, my, my calling was really an ed reform. So I moved over to the Department of Education to oversee a new office that um, administered some of the more innovative grants at the department. Um, and I was there for about four, uh, four years. So overall, I was uh, in the White House and the, and the department for about six years before I went over to um, work in the private sector in early childhood education, which is really the... Um, you know, it's an interesting space because we, throughout my life, I had advocated for choice in the K-12 system. Um, but in our early childhood years, uh, families make a lot of choices. Um, and a, lo a lot of the funds are following families to the provider of their choice. So it was quite fascinating to see how a kind of a more of a market-driven system worked in those early years and if there were any lessons for K-12. Um, so... What were the lessons you, you found from working in early education that you'd love to see applied in K-12? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it's a very innovative, it's actually very similar to the charter school space in that there's a lot of innovation and variety and the types of pro programs that are offered to families. A lot of these programs cater to the needs of working families. So they're located in areas that are either close to the home or close to the workplace. Um, and uh, there is, um, you know, definitely a variety of programs from Emilio Regio to, um, you know, a more kind of structured approach um, in programs like Bright Horizons and whatnot. Um, you also have, in terms of um, the providers, you have quite a variety. Um, so you have, you know, some some big uh, providers like Kindercare and Bright Horizons, but you also had a fair number of small uh, or just you know, one an entity or one person running a childcare center, sometimes out of their home, even. So, um, so in terms of ne meeting the needs of parents, I felt like that there was definitely a lot of variety. But of course, as everyone knows, there's also the there's mixed quality in that sector, and um, 
the way that states like North Carolina addressed the the quality um, side is by attaching star rating systems on these mm-hmm. providers, um, so that uh, the consumer would know if they were getting something that was, you know, had five stars and was fully licensed, or something that didn't have those attached to it. And by creating uh, these um, public uh, publicly available uh, ratings, um, a little bit similar to Yelp, you actually were able to shift the the way people behaved and. On top of it, also North Carolina. This is a while ago, so hopefully they still have the same law. They also attached incentives. So if you were low income and were benefiting from a um, from a from a tax break or some other stipend, um, you were more likely to be able to redeem those stipends in certain centers as opposed to others. So that's how public policy interfaced with the uh, with that community and incentivized quality. I think that's one of the lessons that certainly our space could learn from. It's very different, of course. I mean, you know, attaching yeah. ratings always uh, is complicated. You know, our licensing in our space is also not something that we're used to. So, and every state has a different set of standards and accountability systems and rating systems. So uh, we haven't come together as a community to really have these mm. discussions nationally. Um, but those are the things that the, uh, that, that, uh, sector had done over time, and I think it has definitely benefited um, the overall well-being of the kids in the system. Yeah, and I think it's continuing now. There's the in the early ad. There's the quality rating and improvement system, which is yeah. an effort. Indeed, it's very difficult to align the state standards, but it's progressing. So some states in California, it's going really well. Um, so if we take your your experience in early ed as a starting point, and then kind of the vision or the ambition you had when you started off in the White House and Department of Education on school choice, and you had like this this vision uh, with the innovative grants, and where you are right now, where you know in the last uh, kind of uh, researching for for this interviews, seeing some videos of you. And you, there, there, you are. Uh, you, you said you are at the crossroad. You said the movement is sometimes at the crossroad. Like if we take these three points and project into the future, let's do a third thought experience. Let's envision what's the ideal scenario in your view. How do you wish or envision? Because we can't predict that charter schools, in particular, but then the the K twelve ecosystem as a whole will be different ten years from now. Let's try and paint a kind of a picture. Yeah, so it's important to know where we've been before we predict the future. Um, So I started um, working on this topic in 1995, and the first charter school law passed in 1991 in Minnesota. The first charter school opened in Minnesota in 1992. So we have quite a bit of, um, um, you know, track record really in the charter school space. Uh, around things that have worked and things that have not worked. We now have 45 states with charter school laws and Washington, D.C. We have uh, 3.2 million students in charter schools in a little over 7,000 public charter schools around the country. And um, if you look back at the way charter laws were enacted, it definitely was the product of compromise in state legislatures by individuals on the left and the right who wanted to offer access to more students to high quality public schools uh, while keeping the the choices within the public realm. Um, So I believe we've definitely accomplished quite a bit, both in terms of growth, but in terms of accomplishments. Uh, There's a great book by Richard Whitmire called The B.A. 
Breakthrough, which uh, lists um, the, the great work that some of our charter school leaders are now doing in taking some of their first-generation um, high school grads to and through college. Uh, so we now have been able to demonstrate some of the best practices that these schools um, are, are conducting, and it would be great if the traditional system just took a page out of these best practices, because ultimately what we're trying to do in most places is to take low-income families get them to and through college in order for them to move out of poverty. And if we, you know, if, if that, if you're looking at the puzzle or the problem in that way, um, charters have definitely made huge progress in that direction by offering a better uh, education to kids that fits their needs. So in terms of the future though, I mean, what's, what's happened over time is I've, as we've grown, certainly in those cities like Washington, DC, where I live, where we're close to 50% in charter schools, um, the system has um, noticed and reacted. So in D.C., I would say the reaction has been very positive. The overall quality of the public school system in D.C. has improved because of the pressure that charter schools have brought. The other thing that's happened in Washington, D.C., is a lot of families have decided to stay in D.C. after they've had kids. This is the kind of city where a lot of people move to in order to work on Capitol Hill. or you know, a lot of, It attracts a lot of young people, but these young people end up leaving the city after they get married because there is, you know, only so many great public schools they can send their kids to, uh, and the only other option is a is an expensive private education. So uh, the overall system has also improved in a sense that more families are now staying in D.C. and they have more options than they had before. Now. Taking all of that, looking into the future, I think you need to build on all of these. You need to make sure, for instance, um, so we're at a crossroads, quite frankly, because in other places like Los Angeles, for instance, or Chicago, uh, our opposition, um, just really the education bureaucracy, is now reacting to this pressure. And, um, and the teachers' unions certainly are leveraging this pressure uh, to influence Democrat candidates for president. Um, so the big question at Mark really for us is, what do we do in order to continue to expand and serve the needs of families um, while at the same time figuring out a way to either convince our opposition that this is ultimately better for kids, which hopefully they, they will all agree uh, that that these schools have actually benefited the students. I think there's the evidence is definitely on our side. Um, but also, or, or to decide if, if, if these individuals are really going to get in the way, how is our movement going to circumvent them and continue to make that progress? And so that's mm -hmm. a great question. And I don't know that I have a perfect answer for you, but I will just say this. One of the things our movement hasn't done consistently in at the national level is to mobilize uh, its parents, its community leaders, and its teachers to advocate for charter schools. And a part of this is because um, we haven't necessarily needed to do this. Um, and so this is a moment in time where you have to, you have to protect what you've gained. And um, it's a moment in time that requires us to mobilize and activate the base and really go to the people who are benefiting from this and explain to them that if they really want to continue having these schools in their communities, they have to be more active politically. I definitely think that that's something that our movement can do, uh, but it's going to take, um, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time. And I definitely feel like because we have so many families who are sending their kids to charter schools or interested in this option that we have some opportunities that can be, can be leveraged to our advantage. 
Um, and then the other piece of it in terms of growth is for a while, certainly in some communities, our space was growing without really taking into consideration other things that public schools do in a community as, you know, beacons of the community that are overseen by a school board. And so um, sometimes you need to do this because, you know, if, if your job is to educate, the politics surrounding the space can really slow you down to some extent and be distracting. Uh, but ultimately, our schools in the U.S., um, you know, are governed very differently than they're governed in other countries. And so if you want to thrive in the community and be seen as, um, a, you know, a part of the community, the school leaders and parents and everyone else in between needs to also understand the importance of uh, showing up um, at the school board meetings and showing up at the different community organizer meetings so that the community organizers and other individuals who are in your space understand that, you know, what you're doing and um, and why what you're doing is so important for the well-being of the families in that community. We kind of assume that that's something that they already know, uh, but if you're not present and you're not taking advantage of uh, different forums um, to go and show your face, quite frankly, in the city council and whatnot, you are losing some opportunities, quite frankly, in in selling your value proposition. And I think we need to do a better job of telling our story, quite um, so to speak. I think that's that's important. And we see we work with a number of charter schools, and we engage the community for them. We see them doing a better and better job. Frankly, it's schools across the the board are doing this, but charter schools in particular are doing a better better job of telling their story. And I was reading um, an article you wrote where you, you were explaining how they need to also invite, uh, you know, political pers persons over to the school and kind of create buzz. And I was actually talking to a charter school who did that and it was very beneficial to them and the community because they got more attention. They got a spotlight. Maybe you want to share a couple of spotlights of like one or two uh, cases in Washington, in California, wherever, where you think that, you know, it's a bright spot. It's a, it's a charter school that demonstrates what's, what the school system needs to look like 10 years from now in the future. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, you know, when you look at the future, um, technology uh, has already been playing a big role in our lives and it will definitely continue to disrupt our lives in pretty significant ways and our schooling is not going to be any different. So um, personalized learning to me is ultimately where uh, education uh, is headed and um, there are a handful of schools that are um, definitely doing more personalized instruction and getting great results. So uh, Summit, uh, which is a network based out of California, uh, run by a great leader by the name of Diane Tavener, is one of the schools that uh, was really at the forefront of offering this type of personalized learning. Uh, so again, you go to a school, you still have teachers, uh, but you also leverage uh, content online uh, in order to expedite learning and to meet students, quite frankly, where they are and, and, and create individual individualized learning plans for each of them so that they can make progress at their own pace towards um, the standardized tests that the state requires every public charter school to take. So uh, I would cite Summit as an example of an innovative school. Uh, there's a great school, uh, Valor Academy, 
in Nashville. Mm. Uh, actually, the leaders of uh, Valor uh, used to be at Summit. Uh, based on the same model, this is a diverse by design charter school that has also uh, come up with a very innovative restorative justice program, which is an important topic these days since um, we're talking quite a bit in the chartering space about um, reducing suspension rates in our schools, many of the schools. Um, you know, there are legal issues, but also for cultural purposes, a lot of our schools in some communities um, have been quick to suspend students. And now that we know that this is an issue in some of our communities, we've been very quick to correct the problem. And so uh, you don't want to just come up with some, you know, homegrown program to show that your numbers are going down. In the case of Valor, they've actually come up with some practices that definitely help reduce the instances, incidents of you know, that would require you to be suspended from your school. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do think the future is going to be more personalized. Our schools are well equipped to fit into this future because we're nimble and uh, we don't have to coordinate with a centralized bureaucracy before we make a change. Um, and then having said that, though, I mean, Robert Pondicio has a book that just came out on success academies in New York. Uh, success is a pretty controversial school. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, it's performing at rates that we never thought uh, this types of students who are attending Success Academy could ever hit. So uh, they, they came out again on top compared to all the other schools True. in the entire state of New York. And so um, so that model is not you know personalized the way Diane Tavner's is, but it's definitely attracting a lot of families. Over 7,000 kids are now getting this education at Success Academies, and the school has a huge wait list. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think what we're most proud of is the variety. I don't think there's, you know, a one-size-fits-all way. If you've been to one charter school, you've only just been to that one school. Um, and uh, But, yeah, I would, I would cite those three schools uh, as examples of schools that are doing something really interesting that merits our attention. Now, having said that, 65% of our sector is also led by single-site leaders, and Valerie's a single-site, by the way. Um, we just produced a report. Um, it's a part of a three-part series looking at uh, best practices in some of our smaller networks or single sites. Um, and the and the latest one is um, features three three school leaders. Uh, one in New Orleans, Jamar McNeely, uh, Eric Sanchez, who runs a charter school in North Carolina, uh, and another leader out of California, uh, who are bringing. Um, kind of new ways of approaching teaching based on their own experiences as school leaders of color to the table. Um, I really would like to encourage folks to pay attention to some of these other leaders because our big networks have gotten a lot of attention, which is great, but ultimately the heart and soul of our movement is in the, the 65% that are doing unique things in each community, whether it's meeting the needs of students who are, you know, for whatever reason are, are in the juvenile justice system or students who are in rural communities that uh, are learning about agriculture sciences and whatnot. And I think the uniqueness of some of these other programs sometimes gets lost when you talk about uh, those networks that are trying to replicate their success. 
That's great. And I will link to all these uh, items. So the book you mentioned, the report uh, from your website, the school websites, et cetera. So I'll link all, all of those in the in the show notes. So be, before you, you mentioned the word circumvent, so you, were, you said, you know, you're mobilizing your base to, you know, uh, to elevate their voices and you have a campaign on that, which I'll also link link to and then you're also finding ways to maybe shift or morph the, the effects the impact you're having um, so we're seeing a lot of school networks like new tech high or big picture learning looser organizations of learning um, and there's a lot of that going on i was talking to transcend the nonprofit earlier this week they're redesigning schools and associating both with big charter networks districts so are you the question here's my question are you seeing a potential future for the charter school network where as there are more types of learning the kind of the legal frameworks and you know everything you've fought for is is i don't know what the right word is dissipated or or kind of um spread out into different um uh, t- types of institutions, even public schools, there's a less of a divide between the different types. Do you see that as a potential future? Um, I hope so. Um, one of the reasons charters were created in many communities was for us to, uh, you know, test new ideas and transfer the learning to the larger to public school system. And unfortunately, um, you know, that transfer hasn't taken place seamlessly because the uh, because of two reasons. One, of the, the bureaucracy where the centralized school systems in most inner cities, um, they're doing a lot of things for thousands of students, so they're not necessarily interested in what a few, a few schools are doing. So unless you're in a Houston where you have some big networks that are doing transformational work, even Houston is not hasn't really been leveraging its charter school space to learn from it. So the learning needs to take place, and I think it's really important for uh, policymakers to bridge the gap and create convenings where the two sectors have to sit together, where the teachers have to learn side by side with the teachers in the traditional system around whatever best practice either side is putting in place. Um, But the other piece of it also is we do need to be a little bit more innovative. I think when we first started, there were a lot of innovators who entered the space. Some of them stayed, others left, which is normal whenever you're launching something. Uh, But one of the things we've discovered in recent years is that a lot of uh, innovators are not looking at the charter school space um, uh, anymore or applying to open a charter school. It could also be, uh, it could be partly because of the politics around the issue, uh, but I also think the way authorizers and funders have approached chartering has uh, potentially had a dampening impact on who uh, applies. Uh, so it used to be, I mean, the, the, the leaders of KIPP have a great story that if they were to launch KIPP Houston today, they probably wouldn't get approved. So um, as the um, size of the charter application has increased um, and the bar on entry has gone up, um, in some instances, we could be discouraging individuals to apply. And, you know, so again, you want to keep the bar high because you don't want just anyone to enter the space uh, and you don't want random people who don't know anything about the topic to open schools. But at the same time, you don't want the bar to be so high that some of your best innovators are not considering the space. I don't know if I answered your question. So you if you did, wanna... yeah. No, no, it's fine. Okay. It's fine. And can I do have an example there? Uh, I was talking to... 
Kelly Smith, the founder of Prenda Schools, their micro schools. They've opened 80 micro schools in under a year. It's spreading like wildfire. Some of them are now becoming charters because, wow. you know, they're, and they're, I think there's this kind of spread and mix of models that's going on. Um, on that, I have a last question because I know you're, you, you don't, you're limited with time. I have a last question, then I might ask you to just share any parting thoughts. Um, so many experts, school experts, like thought leaders like Tom van der Ark and others are, are thinking that the pendulum is swinging towards decentralization now with the Every Student Succeed Act and you know, other initiatives. Maybe the bureaucracy, which is messing with, with uh, your uh, momentum, is, might be getting out of school innovators' way. True or false? I don't know. That's maybe too, too, uh, too much of an optimistic vision. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, yes, um, laws like every, the every students succeeds act have shifted more attention and power back to states. Um, but ultimately the states, um, need to do something with this new power or freedom to do something different. And if they don't leverage the additional power to help, um, you know, to help, um, De further decentralized by opening charter schools and empowering parents to make choices, empowering school leaders to run their schools more autonomously. If they don't do that, then the power will be centralized in 50 different states. So it will definitely take leadership at the state level by the governors and the superintendents of the state to realize the vision that Tom and others have in mind. Um, so I definitely think it's 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 on the table as something that could happen, but I personally haven't seen a lot of innovation come out of the state plans that many of these states have submitted to the federal government in this new world order, uh, which um, which doesn't have the hallmarks of no child left behind on it. Any parting thoughts, Nina, for the audience as they're looking to innovate and uh, and grow their schools and make them healthy and keep them healthy and good learning environments? Well, um, um, yeah, I mean, I would just say, you know, the charter movement uh, is highly concentrated in inner cities. Uh, one of the other things we discovered last year when we were studying um, the, the rates of growth around different parts of the country were the huge opportunities we have to expand in rural communities, uh, not only because it's, you, you have your fair share of low-income families in some of these rural communities, but also because a chartering was never supposed to be confined to uh, inner cities. Um, you want to go where the need is greatest, and the need really is defined by the families in the community. Um, so I personally hope that our movement can actually do a lot more thinking around how to engage um, rural superintendents and encourage them to open charter schools or partner with charter schools. I would love to see more of our charter school leaders try to expand in rural communities. Uh, and I ultimately think that by doing that, um, from a branding standpoint, you, you, you kind of, um, the, the model is really about giving autonomy to a school leader in exchange for student achievement. And I think that model can work in, um, in rural and suburban settings just as well as it's working right now in inner cities. Nina, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to School Growth Mastery, brought to you by Enrollhand. 
If you like what you heard, please do subscribe to our show and share this episode with your fellow educators. You can support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or your preferred podcasting app. That way more school leaders like you will find us. If you want to learn more about school growth, visit our website at enrollhand.com and please do check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Until next time, goodbye for now.